0: Good morning. Good morning. Father, thank you for the ability to um, see a younger generation um, come forward and uh, lead us. Father, I pray that you would continue to be faithful to raise up um, generation until you come, Lord, the seeds that are planted in us that we can be faithful to plant them in others. Lord, I thank you for our team in Jordan that uh, this week we got word from them, or today we got word how they, they, not only they made it safely, but they're really exceeding expectations in the work that they're doing there and helping with the ministry there and to uh, build facilities and just how well it's going. I Pray that you'd continue to give them safety and effectiveness and fruit and that you would uh, use this as an experience that they can get to know you better and to love you and love one another more and to be uh, confident in in your work through them. Father, may that be the truth for all of us as a result of our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of us have ever sat down to read the book of Revelation in the Bible and we're sort of enamored, we're confused, we're fascinated, maybe sometimes even scared, and we say, Boy, I wish somebody would tell me what this means? On the other hand, how many times have we, if we really be honest with ourselves, how many times have we? Wanted to, to uh, have somebody tell us we have our preconceived notions and our preconceived fears, and we want to find somebody to tell us what we want to hear that it means. Today we're beginning a series in the year of the apostles as we look at the letters of the New Testament, and today we're beginning. A series in the book of Revelation as we have worked our way through the letters of the New Testament. And I have a simple goal for this series. And a goal for this series can be summarized in help us treat Revelation the same way we treat the rest of the Bible. Instead of getting to the book of Revelation and thinking that something totally different and unique and Obscure has, has happened that we learn to read Revelation the way we read the other 65 books of the Bible. And to explain what that means and to begin to unpack that, uh, I would ask us to compare the goal of the book of Revelation with the stated blessing of the book. And in Revelation 1-3, there's a, a threefold blessing connected with the book of Revelation. Look at it with me in Revelation 1-3. Read it with me. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, that being said, um, looking, leaving this verse on the, on the screen to look at it a little bit closer, Notice that the first blessing is for those who read. Now, the context immediately for that, for the recipients of the book of Revelation, when John wrote it, the first people that would have been reading it would have been first-century believers, uh, none of whom owned a Bible. We conveniently forget, living in the blessed state that we live in, in this country, that throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, ninety-plus percent of people have never owned a Bible. Bibles, even among Christians, were not common until 16, 1700s, and even then they weren't nearly as common as today because a huge percentage of people were illiterate to start with, but also until the mass printing of Bibles occurred, then they wouldn't have been cheap and only rich people could have afforded them. So, the overwhelming majority of people who have identified themselves with Jesus Christ in the past 2,000 years have never owned a Bible, ever. And the only place they were exposed to the Bible was when they went to church and somebody read it to them. Furthermore, that's not unique because because prior to that, in Judaism, the same was true even more so because <clears throat> the scrolls were kept at the synagogue or in the case of Jerusalem at the temple and they were read on Shabbat as they would be today to the congregation. The only, Jesus never owned a Bible, ever. Jesus never took a Bible home and read it. He didn't have that. No, we, we we have this perception that everything, that our experience is somehow universal. Our experience is the rare exception, not the rule. So when it says, blessed are those who read, it's primarily referring to the fact that John knew that when he finished his document that it would be distributed among the leaders of the churches and somebody, like I'm standing up here reading and talking today, somebody would stand up and read it to the people. But that's another reason that we need to be sobered is to come into touch with reality because as a side point to that, Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And we don't just have immediate access to Bibles. People give them away. That's what the ministry of Gideon's has been doing for decades, and then also they're on our phone for free. I mean, we are oversaturated with the Bible, so of, I mean, put two and two together. If anybody should, should be responsible before God to know the Bible, and if to whom much is given, much is required, you fill in the blank. And God always judges people based upon their degree of culpability. Always. And that passage of Jesus in Luke 12 reinforces that. Well, that's a side point. But those who read and those who hear, that would be obviously the people that were sitting in the congregation listening to the reading, and keep those things which are written in it. In other words, do obey the Word, live according to the Word, make decisions based upon the Word. But notice, so the reading of it, and and even though that was originally intended for the public reading and the reader, that certainly doesn't presume that anybody that reads it today wouldn't also receive a blessing under any context, which would include us. But those who read it, those who hear it, and those who keep it, Notice what isn't said. What isn't said is those who understand it. And yet, 99% of us, when we read the book of Revelation, then we ache to have someone explain it or to understand it or to hear somebody come up with a perspective that they understand it. There's nothing in there about a blessing for understanding it. So, the goal of this series is to help us treat Revelation the same way we treat the rest of the Bible. And so, how does that play out? Well, the first five, books of, first five words of the book summarize and state the nature and purpose of the book of Revelation. The first five, books are the mo- first five words are the most important words in the book. And those are the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now back about 1985, I think it was, I set out on a, on a mission. I, I preached the entire year that year from the book of Revelation. I, I preached an in, entire year of preaching from the book of Revelation only and worked my way through the book. And in doing that, I. I gained a deep exposure to the, to the book, and I realized after some time that the, these five words were more important than I previously understood. These five words defined the, the purpose and the nature of the book. So I did a deep dive into these five words. And what you understand as you do that and what you discover is that the prepositional phrase of Jesus Christ is crucial in understanding the essence of what John is telling us here. And what you, un- what you discover as you dive into the original text of the original language is that it's a, a genitive construction. And a genitive construction was a a possessive. In other words, it was something that was possessed by the subject of Jesus Christ, something Jesus uh, possesses, so to speak. But the question is, as you go even deeper into that, now bear with me, this isn't that hard. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. Um, As you go deeper into that, what you discover is that there's more than one type of genitive construction. There's a subjective genitive, which means the the possessor of of the subject, of, of whatever's being discussed. And then there's an objective genitive, which means that whatever's being discussed is about this person. So the question is, was this a genitive that Meant that Jesus was the possessor of this revelation, or did it mean that Jesus was this, that this revelation was about Jesus? So after I thought about it, I, th- I thought I said, "You know, why can't it be both? Why, why can't this be? Why can't this be a a book that Jesus Himself possesses?" And has it's it's from him in that sense, uh, and why can't it be also the revelation of him? In other words, it's about him. Why can't this book be a book where Jesus is showing himself to us? So you know how it is when you come to a conclusion and nobody else seems to have it, you kind of go, well, maybe I'm kind of weird about this. Many years later, the New English Translation of the Bible came out. It's a fine translation, nothing wrong with it, a good translation, but what I love about it is that the translators in the footnotes, they take you through their thinking. In other words, they they think for you as to how they have processed why they translated certain things certain ways. And so when I read... A portion of the footnote for, gen, for Revelation 1.1, here's what it said. I, when I read this, I jumped out of my seat. The phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, could be interpreted either as an objective genitive, the revelation about Jesus Christ, or subjective genitive, the revelation from Jesus Christ, or Both. A general or a plenary genitive and then they go on to say that that's that's other people who have endorsed that and they themselves endorse that so I was thrilled because I believe that that is what's being communicated here that this is a truth about Jesus that he exclusively knows That he, through John and through the vision that he gives John, is revealing to us. The point is that it's about Jesus. We read the book of Revelation and we think immediately about what? End times. This is all about end time. According to John, in the first five words, it's about Jesus. Now that's not unusual. Because if you look at the words of Jesus in John chapter five when he's facing his adversaries who want to kill him, because he had broken the Sabbath by healing somebody on the Sabbath, geniuses that they were. John 5:46, look at it with me. "For if you believe Moses, you would believe me because He wrote about me. Jesus is saying to these people who claim to be preeminent disciples of Moses and what books is he talking about? He's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying Moses wrote about me. Oh, really? I thought there was creation, there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's the Exodus from Egypt and Pharaoh and Moses, and there's the numbering of the people and all the travels in the wilderness. I thought that was... No, Jesus says it's about me. It's about me." And then after the resurrection, in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his buddies. And it says in verse 27, "...and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." Now, that goes beyond Genesis through Deuteronomy. That goes to the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says that from Genesis to Malachi is truth about him. And then he, then he repeats himself a little bit later in that chapter. This is the resurrected Jesus while he's on the earth for 40 days before he ascends back to heaven. And he says in verse 44 of Luke 24, "...these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms concerning me." Now, I hope there are no, no people who think that the New Testament is not about Jesus. I mean, you know, newsflash. Newsflash. The New Testament is clearly about Jesus from start to finish. Jesus says the Old Testament is about Him from start to finish. You don't have two Bibles. You have one Bible. You have one Bible. You see, if the other 65 books of the Bible are about Jesus... Why in the world would number 66 not be about Jesus? I mean, that's that's not even rational. And John, instead of making us guess, John just tells us straight up in the first line, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's from Him, and it's about Him. So when you read any of the other books of the Bible to discover truth about Jesus, then instead of trying to read the book of Revelation and discover truth about whatever, maybe we ought to first ask the question, what's this teach us about Jesus? Let me illustrate the point I'm making. I'm going to go to chapter 16 to illustrate this point, but let me back up because these first couple of weeks in the book of Revelation, I'm trying to lay the foundation for the perspective on the book. I'm trying to lay that in the first couple of weeks. And I I don't know, obviously beyond that, there's going to be a a lot of weeks that I'm not going to be here. And we've got very capable staff, staff, uh, pastors who are going to be preaching and, you know, thank God for the, the team that God has raised up. So what I'm doing, because I've my date for my surgery is scheduled for the 17th of October, so beyond that date, for a good bit of time, I'm going to be out of the saddle. But what I'm doing in the meantime before that happens is just trying to set the scene and put the book in context. So I also want to encourage you in your bulletin, you have a QR code that links you to the Bible talk that I do weekly, and what I do, like for example, in the Bible talk, um, not this week but the previous week, uh, I did talk about the, the way revelation throughout the centuries in the millennia has been interpreted by the church. There's the idealist view, there's the preterist view, there's the historicist view, and there's the futurist view. And... And I believe all four are valid. And I I believe that like all prophecy, revelation is multidimensional. But what I'm getting at is, is that I would encourage you because I'm trying in those Bible talks too to kind of lay a foundation and a concept and a perception and a perspective for going forward with the rest of the book. So these first few messages from my perspective are vital to understand where we're going and where that, Uh, direction is. So let me illustrate in talking about the foundational truth being the realization that it's not different from the other books of the Bible and that it's about Jesus primarily. I want to illustrate that. I'm going to cherry pick a passage from from Revelation chapter 16. Now in chapter 16 what we have with the imagery and the figures of speech and all that's used is we have the seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out. Now, we know from Scripture, from the book of Genesis, beginning with Genesis, that biblically, the number seven indicates completion or fullness, right? Because creation was six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested, and that was the first week. So creation was completed in that first week. So the number seven indicates and carries with it the idea of fullness or completion. So if we have seven bowls of God's wrath poured out, then that indicates the fullness of God's wrath, would it not? The full measure of God's wrath that is poured out. Okay, with that being said, chapter 16, beginning with verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Now, we leave that verse up there for a minute. Let's unpack it, okay? Seventh angel, seventh bowl, full measure of God's wrath. And God executes his wrath against what? Sin, judgment for sin. Does he not? Right? God, God acts in wrath against those who are guilty of sin. That's, that's the object of God's wrath, is sinful people. OK? Now, so the seventh angel pours out his bowl with the full measure of the wrath of God. And then John says, "And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne. saying, it is done. Now, who would be speaking from the temple and the throne? Hello, it's not you or me. That's exclusively the abode of God. This is God speaking. And the seventh bowl of His wrath has been poured out, and He says, it's done. Now, I want you to compare this with... John chapter 19, verse 30. John chapter 19, there you go. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, whose sin was he dying for? It wasn't his. It was yours and mine. And Almighty God was using the Roman government as an instrument of His wrath for our sin on the body of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, what does the song say? Jesus paid it all, all to Him own. That's the full measure of God's wrath. Now... I want us to go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 18. And, right after he says it's done, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when there's thunder and lightning going on, there's some dark clouds around. Now, let's go to Matthew 27, verse 51. He says, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks split. In Revelation 16, he says, it is done, and there's a darkness, and there's an earthquake. In 27 of Matthew, the record of Jesus' crucifixion, following the crucifixion, there was a ma- massive earthquake. Now, let's go to Revelation sixteen nineteen. Now, the great city, this is talking about Babylon the Great, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Isn't it interesting that we go in Revelation 16, we go straight from it is done and the full measure of the wrath of God is poured out and we go straight in the book of Revelation to the fall of Babylon the Great. Now... What typically is done with the book of Revelation is you find some bit of imagery, and people go to the newspaper or to the newscast and try to figure out where does this fit in history. Every generation of Christians has done that since the first century. Babylon the Great for the first century church. Hey, this isn't a hard one. Rome, Antichrist, Caesar. Not hard to figure out. Nero, emperor of Rome what, 60-ish A.D., Nero's persecution of Christians was such that he took followers of Jesus the Messiah and he put them on poles in Rome and he lit their bodies on fire to be streetlights for the Romans to walk at night. One can easily see that Rome fits perfectly, although this was written after that event, Rome fits perfectly with Babylon the Great. Furthermore, you fast forward the tape, say in the Middle Ages, 1500s, Martin Luther, a, a Catholic monk, comes along and he discovers that there are factions of leadership within the church that are not doing what the Bible says about essential truths that relate to the church, i.e., what it means to have a relationship with God. And so there's persecution that goes on, and so there's a common consensus that maybe the church is some manifestation of Babylon the Great. And then I'm just I'm just picking I'm just picking examples throughout the span of history. Every generation has has its own understanding because the guy that lived in 1,000 A.D. and heard the book of Revelation read, he didn't stop and say, you know, this isn't valid till 2023. It doesn't matter to me. Every generation has had their scenario and their situation which they tried to make relevant to themselves. What I'm saying to you is this, is that All the imagery in the book of Revelation has a precedent in the Bible. And you interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Instead of looking forward to try to glean from the Word what God is trying to tell us in Revelation, instead of looking forward, first look backward. Look back to the Bible. And where is the first mention of Babylon? Genesis chapter 11. And what happens in Genesis chapter 11 is that humanity gets together to build a tower to usurp God. In other words, people don't just sin individually, people sin corporately. And what happened, they're going to build a tower, they're going to get together, and they're going to overrule God collectively as humanity. And it's fascinating that when the full measure of the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, that Babylon the Great is destroyed. Even the power, not just of individual sin, but the power of corporate sin is destroyed. When Jesus absorbs God's wrath on the cross, it is finished, it is done, it is satisfied and humanity has been redeemed, and the potential for redemption exists in the Messiah for every believer to be exactly who God created us to be and to be free from enslavement to our own selves and our selfish, deadly desires. You see, Revelation 16 is a dramatic and powerful way of emotionally confirming the consequences of Jesus' sacrificial death. Metaphorically, it describes the cosmic consequences of his death on the cross because he absorbed the full measure of the wrath of God for sin. Not just your sin, but God's judgment for our sin has been satisfied. And that's illustrated in the overthrow of Babylon the Great. And what we need to understand is what Revelation is trying to communicate is the great truth of what Jesus has accomplished and how that echoes of that are played out in in the history of the world and no doubt at the end of the world. But the issue is not the events that occur and our consequences we receive from that, but the issue is how does this exalt Jesus through what's going on even in world history. Let me quickly illustrate. My time is is fleeting, and I always want to be faithful because of the dear folks in the nursery. But let me illustrate what this means and what the truth that's embedded in the text of Revelation about Jesus means. Robert Mulholland writes this, John also saw that fallen Babylon carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. That's important. How many of, you know, we've got all these... You know, governments throughout the world that collectively oppose God or individually oppose God and oh my goodness, what are we gonna do about him or whatever? We don't need they need to be afraid. They they have written their own death sentence by their value system. And remember John who wrote this book and saw this vision was at the time imprisoned by the very government that had murdered Jesus, but he's the one who said, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. As awesome, back to Mulholland, as awesome and powerful and invincible as fallen Babylon may appear, every incarnation is infected with the cancer of its own destructiveness. It turns upon itself and causes its own demise. This is an integral part of the inexorable victory of the Lamb. All previous incarnations of fallen Babylon in human history are gone, but New Jerusalem carries its incarnation through history. Hallelujah, New Jerusalem's never destroyed. And by the way, if you measure New Jerusalem, 1,600 stadia cube in the book of Revelation, and you do what church history tells us, a comparison to how far the gospel had spread approximately the time that John wrote, it basically covers the extent of the gospel preaching at that time. Hello. A good modern example is the Soviet Union. In 1985, I had the privilege of teaching John's visions to the pastors of the Methodist Church in the Soviet Republic of Estonia. When I used the Soviet Union as their fallen Babylon, their heads nodded in agreement. Many in the group had loved ones disappear in the gulag. Some had been imprisoned themselves. My translator had been interrogated by the KGB on multiple occasions. They knew the presence and the power of their fallen Babylon. When I began to tell them that the Soviet Union would fall, however, that it carried within it, the seeds of its own destruction, they immediately began to shake their heads in disagreement. This would never happen. Never in their lifetime. Within six years, their fallen Babylon was gone. And soon thereafter, they were entirely free and an independent nation. I propose to you that most of the time that people read Revelation to try to gain a mastery over the text. And the reasons for that, one can only speculate. But I would suggest to you that, that Revelation was not given to us through John by Jesus to satisfy curiosity or tranquilize irrational fear of people. But rather, as John summarizes in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He was imprisoned by the very government. He said, thinks they're in power, but they're not. He knew what Jesus knew. When he faced Pilate that day in Jerusalem, and Pilate in frustration said, Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus said, You would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. Folks, the book of Revelation proves that Jesus Christ, right now and forever, is calling the shots in the universe. And he himself, he himself confirmed it. After the resurrection, as Matthew sets up the Great Commission with this preface, Jesus said, All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go. The goal of Revelation, hallelujah, is to help us treat Revelation the same way we treat the rest of the Bible. Read it trying to find Jesus and celebrate what it's saying about the fact that right now he rules and forever. So to drill down, the goals are for us to discover the truth about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is about Jesus Christ. Secondly, for us to read the book... The blessing is in reading. If you read the book, God promises that you're going to be blessed. You say, Well, I don't understand it. I don't, hopefully, you've listened to the rest of the sermon. That doesn't matter. Great, greatest advice I ever got about reading the book of Revelation, this can be applied to any scripture. God guy said, read the book of Revelation once a day from start to finish for seven straight days. Do not take a pencil. Do not try to figure it out. Do not make a note. Read the book. And at the end of seven days, see how the book changes you rather than you changing the book. How the book controls you, you don't control the book. So the goal is to let the book control us rather than us try to control the book. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed are those who keep the words of his prophecy. And for us to enter into the present reality of the absolute reign of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 5, He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. John knew that Caesar couldn't do anything to him that Jesus didn't allow. I love the words of Billy Graham many years ago. I heard him say, you know, I've read the last words of the Bible, and guess what? Jesus wins. And what I'm saying to you is I think what John is teaching us is Jesus doesn't only win, he's already won. He's in control. And, and the only safe place is with him. Hallelujah.